Foreign Relations Committee will come to order, and uh, we thank our nominees for being here and for their willingness to serve our country. Uh, we especially thank our distinguished senators who are here to introduce them, Senator Nelson, Senator Hirono. Uh, as a courtesy to you, we will not go through you having to listen to the unbelievable opening comments that both Menendez and I are going to offer in just a moment, and instead let you uh, uh, go directly to yours so that you can go to other meetings. So uh, why don't you all go ahead and make your introductions. We thank you for uh, coming in here to be with us today. We thank both of you for your service, and we look forward to your comments. Well, Mr. Chairman, we would be, Senator Rono and I would be delighted to hear the eloquence of the, the chairman and the ranking member, uh, but the fact that you would allow us to go ahead, uh, it's a personal, <laughs> it's a personal uh, uh, reason that we're here, uh, because we know the nominee, uh, and we consider the admiral a distinguished Floridian, uh, what we in our native lingo say that he's a Florida boy, uh, having gone to uh, junior high and high school in Pensacola. Uh, I want to thank him for his willingness, and as you know, he was first nominated to be the ambassador to Australia and I think uh, the fact that uh, the administration decided this critically important post in South Korea, I, I think that indicates uh, uh, not only the confidence that people have in the four-star admiral, admiral, but it's also him being willing to answer the call of service wherever he is required. And he first answered that call as a young man 40 years ago, uh, the Naval Academy. He comes from a long line of great naval aviators. And over the course of his military career, he reached the height of his profession. His dad, Navy, chief petty officer uh, and his record speaks for itself uh, this is a nomination that is fitting and timely and as we undertake now the diplomacy with North Korea obviously the necessity is of having the most prepared and skilled ambassador uh, to represent the United States in that part of the world. Like the other combatant commanders, uh, he's not just what you think of as a combatant commander because every one of them are skilled diplomats. They're warriors, but they're also diplomats. Uh, he helped uh, to grow the partnerships with the military and the political leaders throughout the Pacific region. And like any good military leader, he knows just how important diplomacy is. He's going to make a great ambassador just like he made a great commander. 
Uh, it's not every day that two senators, neither from the president's party, commend the nominee of the president. Uh, but this is a nominee that I look at. He's not partisan. Uh, he's not bipartisan. He's nonpartisan. And that's exactly what we need. It's telling that the nominee enjoys such broad bipartisan support. And I hope that this committee will move uh, his nomination quickly. It's obvious that we need our ambassador in that position. And I want to thank the admiral and his family. And my wife has gotten to know his wife. Uh, for their courtesies extended to us. Uh, and we want to thank both of you for your continued public so service after 40 years. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, Senator Arona. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for your courtesy and uh, Ranking Member Menendez and all of the distinct, distinguished members of this committee. This week was a significant moment for our engagement in the Korean Peninsula. For the first time, a sitting United States president met with a leader of North Korea. At the Singapore summit, President Trump and Kim Jong-un committed to continue negotiations and reaffirm promises that North Korea has made in the past. However, we also heard the president question the long-term commitment of our troop presence in South Korea and accept the North Korean rationale on ending joint military exercises that have increased regional safety and cooperation. We all share the goal of a permanent, verifiable denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, but the hard work lies ahead. Many obstacles remain between Tuesday's handshake and a comprehensive, verifiable agreement between our two countries. Reaching an agreement will require months or even years of hard negotiations and considerable consultation with our regional allies, particularly South Korea and Japan. Our next ambassador to South Korea can play a role in these negotiations. These efforts will require an individual with experience in the region, an understanding of our military forces serving on the Korean Peninsula, and the diplomatic skills and temporary temperament necessary to negotiate with a regime that has repeatedly failed to live up to its commitments. I believe Admiral Harry Harris fits this bill. And I am honored to join Senator Nelson in introducing Admiral Harris to this committee to serve as our next ambassador to South Korea. After graduating from the U.S. Naval Academy in 1978, Admiral Harris served as a decorated naval flight officer. He went on to hold a variety of leadership roles throughout the Navy, including as the Secretary of State's military attache during the Obama administration. I first met Admiral Harris just before he assumed command of the U.S. Pacific Fleet in October 10, 2013. Over the past five years, I've gotten to know Admiral Harris and appreciate his uh, the open, supportive, and candid relationship that we've developed. He and his wife, Bruni Bradley, have become part of our Hawaii Ohana. Upon assuming command of the U.S. Pacific Command in 2015, Admiral Harris dedicated significant time and effort to strengthening America's regional alliances and partnerships. During visits to 22 of the 36 countries in the Indo-Pacific region, Admiral Harris met with civilian and military leaders and frequently attended joint exercises with our defense allies and partners. His work to improve military-to-military -military relationships 
often led to stronger government-to-government -government relationships throughout the Indo-Pacific region. In his time as Pacific Fleet Commander and PACOM Commander, Admiral Harris developed close relationships with South Korean leaders, including current President Moon Jae-in. In 2014, he received Korea's Tongil Medal, the country's highest national security merit citation in recognition of his work with the Republic of Korea Armed Forces. Admiral Harris also worked closely with our con congressional delegation and other members of Congress. When my colleagues in the House and Senate visited Hawaii and requested a PACOM briefing, I made it a point to also attend. Admiral Harris's briefings were always thorough, often eye-opening, and left attendees with a deeper appreciation for PACOM and our country's vital interests in the Indo-Pacific region. Many know Admiral Harris as a tough leader with high expectations for the men and women under his command, but I also know him as a down-to-earth, empathetic person. Let me tell you a story. The Washington Post recently highlighted one example of Admiral Harris's dedication to others as a part of a profile on Colonel Bruce Hollywood. Bruce was born in Japan to a Japanese mother and an American father, but Bruce's father left his birth mother in Japan and she put Bruce up for adoption, thinking that that would be best for Bruce under the circumstances. He was adopted by an American couple raised in Texas and went on to serve as an Air Force colonel. After he nearly died of a heart attack in 2005, Bruce set out to find his birth mother and thank her for giving him the chance to have what he called a wonderful life. Bruce contacted the Japanese embassy in the United States, the US embassy in Tokyo, and even hired a private detective, all to no avail. He had given up his search for his mother when by chance he met then Rear Admiral Harris at an airport and shared his story. When Admiral Harris told Bruce that he would help him find his birth mother, Bruce was very skeptical. But Admiral Harris was adamant, so Bruce gave him the information he had uh, pieced together. And 10 days later, Bruce received a call while at work at the Pentagon. The Japanese embassy was on the phone with news that they had found at long last his birth mother, Nobue Ouchi. Thanks to Admiral Harris's assistance, Bruce reunited with his mother and they were in contact for three years before she passed away in 2009. So in Admiral Harris, we have someone who is tough-minded and clear-eyed with tremendous military experience and someone who is very resourceful and focused on the task at hand. Admiral Harris's expertise in the Indo-Pacific region, his leadership experience and engagement with a variety of stakeholders in the region will stand him in good stead as our ambassador to South Korea. Last month at the Pacific Command Change of Command Ceremony, Chief of Naval Operations Admiral John Richardson described Admiral Harris as a warrior diplomat with an insatiable spirit of adventure and an infectious can-do attitude. Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, who said earlier this year that diplomacy must be our first approach to de-escalating tensions on the Korean Peninsula, praised Admiral Harris's experience and expressed his confidence in Admiral Harris in his new role at the same change of command ceremony. I joined Secretary, Secretary Mattis and so many others in expressing my confidence that Admiral Harris will serve our country well as our next ambassador to South Korea. And I thank this committee for its consideration. Well, thank you, for being, thank you for being here with us and both of you for your comments. Uh, you're welcome to uh, 
to leave and go, go about your day. Uh, Admiral, I understand why you have that Hawaiian lay on. You may wish to take it off before you testify, but if you do not wish I would to be that, really hurt if he did that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, thank you both again. Today we will consider the nominations of individuals to serve our nation in three roles, ambassador to South Korea, and the positions of assistant secretary for both Near Eastern and African affairs. If confirmed, these individuals will direct our diplomatic efforts over an enormous, enormous swath of the globe and will grapple with issues ranging from the Syrian civil war to our ongoing dialogue with North Korea. We welcome all of you. We thank you for your willingness to serve and thank your families uh, in the same way. We first have David Shanker. Mr. Shanker has extensive personal and professional experience in the Middle East and speaks a fluent Arabic. I'm confident that Mr. Shanker is well equipped to balance and promote U.S. interest in the Middle East. No region has required more high-level attention than the Middle East, which is, which is home to some of our most vital security partners and also the source of security challenges. Countering Iran, combating terrorism, working to resolve the wars in Syria and Yemen, and reinforcing our regional alliances requires continuous and focused engagement, which is why I'm pleased that the administration has nominated David Shanker to be the next Assistant Secretary of State for Near East Affairs. Next, we have Ambassador Tibor Naj to serve as Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. The United States has important interests in developing and maintaining strong partnerships with African countries and we remain committed to supporting those that choose inclusive and responsible governance. The Africa Bureau must address an extremely large range of diplomatic challenges across the continent with resources and talent appropriate to our growing expectations of relationships we have there. Finally, we have Mr. Harry Harris. I feel like I know more about you than I even want to know. Uh, who? Just recently retired with the rank of Admiral after completing a highly distinguished career in the United States Navy to serve as Ambassador to the Republic of Korea. The U.S. Republic of Korea Alliance is an important relationship for maintaining peace and stability in the Indo-Pacific. During this critical moment on the Korean Peninsula, we require an Ambassador in Seoul that will speak frankly about the importance of the Alliance of alliance cohesion, including maintaining the administration's maximum pressure strategy while pursuing negotiations to, elim to eliminate North Korea's nuclear weapons. I'm glad the President and Kim Jong-un were able to have a meeting this week in Singapore, but I look forward to having Secretary Pompeo before our committee soon to share his insights about what of concrete nature has occurred including the future of security cooperation with Japan and South Korea. We need an ambassador who appreciates that the U.S.-South Korea partnership runs deep, including cooperation across a range of political, economic, and cultural issues. I'm confident that Mr. Harris recognizes the value of the relationship between Washington and Seoul and will effectively advocate for strengthening our relationship with this critical ally. Our thanks to all of you being here uh, for the committee. Before I turn to Senator Menendez, we have two votes beginning at 1030. Uh, we plan to move through the, we're just going to continue on. If you could kind of time out uh, when you leave, knowing when you're going to be coming up, that would be great so we can continue and not have a vacuum here. With that, I'll turn to our distinguished ranking member and my friend Bob Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, uh, for holding to this hearing today, we have a panel before us of high-level 
uh, nominees. And uh, I appreciate uh, and congratulate you and your families on the nominations. Um, I am a bit dismayed that these nomination hearings have become one of the few opportunities the community has to really engage on what the administration's policies are. And I hope, Mr. Chairman, we can have uh, more hearings on more topics with administration witnesses so the committee can exercise its oversight role. Collectively, these nominees will be taking on some of the most pressing national security challenges at a time when goodwill towards our country is on a steep decline, where the administration's budget proposals are slashing non-military resources and the crumbs of U.S. credibility were left somewhere between the summits in Canada and Singapore. But I want to welcome all the nominees today. You have demonstrable records of service, expertise, and experience in your chosen fields. Admiral Harris, uh, I almost think you should skip your opening statement because after that I would rest my case, but, uh, but I'm sure you'll want to make it anyhow. You know that you have accepted this nomination at a time when our allies and adversaries are seriously questioning U.S. commitment to Asia, and at a time when perhaps as never before adept and agile diplomacy is needed on the Korean Peninsula. Like you, I am fully of the view that it is imperative that we improve our engagement across the region, especially with allies like the Republic of Korea politically, economically, and strategically. I think the President blindsided everyone, including South Korea, when he carelessly conceded to Kim Jong-un this week something North Korea has long wanted, the cessation of U.S.-South Korean joint military exercises in exchange for, well, apparently nothing. So I'm interested in your thoughts about how we strengthen the U.S.-Korean alliance moving forward. From your time as our Pacific commander, you're well aware of the extent of our challenge with North Korea. So we thank you for your service. As we consider the outcomes of the Trump-Kim meeting, any strategy to constrain North Korea's nuclear and ballistic missile programs must start with our allies and partners and lead to the complete, verifiable, and irreversible dismantlement of North Korea's nuclear and ballistic missile programs. Mr. Shenko, in the Middle East, uh, the Trump administration's strategy for the U.S. role in the region is uh, something that I'm still trying to deduce. Uh, if confirmed as the Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs, you'll have the responsibility not only to craft but to execute policy here in Washington, but also to drive diplomatic implementation in cooperation with our partners and allies. When it comes to Iran, I share the long-sought goal of stopping all of Iran's nuclear and non-nuclear threats. But I worry that the President's unilateral actions have degraded the very partnerships we need to maintain unity of effort in countering the Iranian regime's malign activities. Regarding Israel, I share the goal of ensuring that Israel has the resources and support she needs to defend herself. But I worry that the President's desire to withdraw U.S. forces from Syria while freezing our stabilization assistance programs and closing doors to refugees are tactics without strategy, and that taken together amount to an abdication of U.S. leadership. Over the past year, Bashar al-Assad facilitated the activities of violent extremists next door to Israel. Iran is moving its proxies ever closer to Israel's borders. Lebanese Hezbollah is preparing for the next war, and Russia has demonstrated neither the resolve nor the capability to curb Iran's actions in Syria. I hope you share Secretary Pompeo's commitment, as expressed at his nomination hearing, to sustain programs that address conditions that give rise to transnational terrorist groups, including poor governance, lack of economic opportunity, corruption, and persistent human rights abuses. 
Finally, I'm pleased that the nominee to be the Assistant Secretary for the Africa Bureau has an impressive record of service to this country. For decades, both Republican and Democratic presidents with the help of lawmakers on Capitol Hill have undertaken an impressive set of initiatives over the years, including the African Growth and Opportunity Act, PEPFAR, MCC Compacts, and Power Africa. The administration has given us little encouragement on continued cooperation. The president's unseemly comments about Africa and the steep budget cuts to the 150 account send an alarming signal. And while the administration's national security strategy makes lots of promises about its engagement with Africa, the budget requested would in no way facilitate that strategy or secure our interests in countering ISIS or Al-Qaeda affiliates. Perhaps most troubling, the administration does not appear to have a whole-of-government approach towards Africa, which places emphasis on all of the three Ds, defense, diplomacy, and development. Take Niger. Niger is facing increasing security threats on three fronts. It also ranked 187 out of 188 on the most recent Human Development Index. The U.S. military has over 800 soldiers deployed to Niger as part of our effort to help that government fight terrorism, four of whom were tragically killed. We are building an airfield in Agadez. However, we do not have a USAID mission in the country that could help support sustainable governance and economic growth. I've written the administration about the need for a strategy for Mali. I've sounded the alarm about increasing violence in the Central African Republic and raised questions with Secretary Pompeo about our strategy for South Sudan, Sudan, and the Horn of Africa. We've yet to receive a satisfactory response. So Ambassador Naj, I ho certainly hope that you and I will have an opportunity to talk soon and look forward to hearing about your priorities, your plans, and your intentions of confirmed. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, and as it relates to uh, having witnesses in, I, I know I said so in my opening comments, but we are pushing to have Secretary Pompeo in so we can fully understand what actually happened uh, in Singapore. And as you know, we haven't had a lot of officials to have testify, and uh, this meeting is uh, uh, hopefully going to help fill some of the slots, but I thank you for your comments and agree that we need to have officials in there helping us. If y'all just uh, move in order, starting with Admiral Harris, uh, I'd appreciate it. If you keep your comments to about five minutes, we'd appreciate it. If you want to introduce your outstanding families who are here, uh, please feel free to do so. It usually tempers folks on this side of the dais. And, uh, and uh, if, if you could keep your comments to, to a little bit to five minutes. If you have any written documents, we're glad to, to accept them here also. Admiral. Thanks, uh, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Menendez and distinguished members of the committee. I'm honored to be with you today, uh, on Flag Day, I might add, as President Trump's nominee to serve as the U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of Korea. I'm humbled that the President has entrusted me with this opportunity to work with the White House and our uh, dedicated officers at the State Department and the 15 other departments and agencies that make up Mission Korea to lead our engagement with such an important ally. Few nominees are fortunate uh, enough to testify before their own senators, and I'm privileged to be here before you, Chairman Corker uh, from Tennessee and Senator Rubio of Florida. I'm also grateful that Senators Nelson and Hirono took the time to formally introduce me. Knowing that I'm not journeying here alone, let me take a moment to express my love and gratitude to my wife, Bruni Bradley, behind me, herself a 25-year Navy veteran. A personal thanks as well to the many former ambassadors who've helped me these past few months, nominees of both parties. To the men and women of the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, it's been a privilege and joy to serve with you these past three years. And finally, I'm honored to be on this panel with such luminaries 
as uh, David Shaker and uh, Tibor Naj. I hope you'll ask them the hard questions and save the softballs for me. Uh, President Trump and his administration have made clear that our alliance with Korea is one of our top priorities. The President hosted President Moon just last June and again last month. The President also visited Korea last November uh, in the first state visit by a U.S. President in 25 years. Following this, there have been a number of other senior-level visits underscoring the strength and importance of our bilateral relationship. In fact, Secretary Pompeo is in Seoul today uh, meeting with President Moon. Mission Korea is staffed by almost 600 dedicated men and women, all working hard to advance U.S. interests in Korea and throughout the Indo-Pacific. If confirmed, I'm excited to serve with this team. Importantly, the alliance and the larger partnership at Indogirds enjoy strong bipartisan support. This committee and your staffs play an active and vital role in guiding this uh, relationship, and I'd like to underscore my deep appreciation for the leadership and engagement that go into maintaining uh, our strong bond with South Korea. I've experienced this relationship firsthand through my experiences with Korea across an almost 40-year career in uniform, including as a former Indo-Pacific Command commander overseeing the military side of the U.S.-Korea alliance. These personal connections began even before I was born, as my father was a sailor who fought in World War II and the Korean War and helped teach Korean sailors at Chin Hei. His stories propelled me to a career in the Navy. Bruni's personal connections started during her first tour of duty when she accompanied her boss to Seoul on several occasions. These experiences afforded us lasting friendships and a deep appreciation of Korean culture and history with their profound linkages to the United States. Everywhere I traveled, whether on ships, in jungles, or the embassies, I saw firsthand the dedication and hard work of men and women committed to making our nation and our world a better place. Along the way, I was reminded again and again of the tremendous diversity of our great country. If confirmed, I'll carry with me those many voices of America along with an abiding commitment to strengthen the shared values that lie at the heart of our relationship with the Republic of Korea. I'm acutely aware that our relationship with Korea is not one-dimensional. Is not one-dimensional. Economically, Korea is our sixth largest trading partner and the fifth largest market for U.S. agricultural goods. Mm. Korean foreign direct investment is already the second largest Asian source of investment in the United States. As a fellow champion of the rule of law and market principles, Korea has shown its willingness to work with the U.S. to ensure free, fair, and reciprocal trade. Last year, our countries enjoyed a $154 billion trading relationship, including goods and services. The U.S. and Korea also share deep people-to-people -people ties. And, and as good as our economic relationship is, we can do even better. If confirmed, I'll support U.S. efforts to tap additional export opportunities and what I see as nascent opportunities in the energy, medical technology, and information sectors. I would support enhanced uh, access for U.S. firms in the Korean market and more Korean direct investment into the U.S. Finally, if confirmed, I'll strive to further deepen our cultural exchanges, scientific collaboration, and cooperation on, on global issues. Ladies and gentlemen, I fully appreciate that I will have to come up to speed quickly. As is obvious to all of you, I've spent my life in uniform, and that's where my expertise lies. But I promise I'll work hard to learn the language and skill sets of diplomacy. I'll even forswear acronyms. I have a lot to learn, indeed, but I do understand the importance of diplomacy as an instrument of national power. As chief of mission of a large embassy with hundreds of U.S. government employees, I pledge to this committee uh, to do my utmost to keep them safe and to carry out their official duties and similarly commit to keeping the American community in, so in South Korea informed of anything that could affect their safety and security. 
I testified last March to your colleagues on the Armed Services Committee that a fully resourced State Department is as important as a fully resourced Defense Department. Robust diplomacy increases our chances of solving problems peacefully. In sum, drawing on the strength of the entire U.S. government, I would, if confirmed as ambassador, endeavor to deepen our partnership and alliance with the Republic of Korea. I'm honored to be considered for this critical post and grateful for the opportunity to continue serving our great nation. And I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. We'll see about the whether you're able to foreswear what you said, but go ahead, Mr. Nash. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, and members of the committee, I'm honored to appear before you as President Trump's nominee to be Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs. I am grateful to the President and Secretary of State for their confidence in me. If confirmed, I very much look forward to working with Congress, especially this committee, to promote America's interests in Africa. My nearly half-century professional and personal association with Africa began in 1979 when I was assigned as a first tour officer to Lusaka, Zambia, a city I had never heard of on a continent I knew little about, to the most junior of positions at a U.S. Embassy. That posting gave me a tremendous appreciation for Africa and its people, and I went on to complete eight tours in Africa, including two as U.S. Ambassador, three as Deputy Chief of Mission, in some of the most challenging environments possible. After retiring in 2003, I joined academia and continued Africa-related work by teaching about it, writing about it, and making multiple trips to the continent to promote ties between U.S. and African universities. In 2016, I was briefly called back to take charge of the U.S. Embassy in Nigeria, and that experience reawakened my intense desire to again help promote U.S. interests on the continent. Since the last time I appeared before this committee, nearly 20 years ago, Africa has changed dramatically, mostly for the better. Data points indicate improvements in overall levels of development, education, especially for girls, health, governance, and economic well-being. These improvements have been matched by dramatic declines in poverty, HIV infections, corruption, and instability. Credit goes to the generosity of the American people and U.S. policies for much of that progress, including bipartisan programs such as AGOA and PEPFAR, which continue to significantly help Africa. At the same time, Mr. Chairman, some of Africa's problems remain unchanged or have worsened. Terrorism and violent extremism have increased in scope and intensity. Some African leaders are perpetuating their rule through constitutional manipulation and increased repression. The most tragic case is South Sudan, born in ebullience in 2011, but since descended into ethnic warfare due to its uncaring leaders. And there is China, adversary, competitor, partner, or all three. One certainty is that the U.S. will have to address China's activities in Africa, especially since that country is offering itself as a more Africa-appropriate model for government and development. Africa is at a historic crossroads, and the direction it takes will impact its future and the security and well-being of the rest of the world. Projections are that by 2050, Africa's population will double to 2.5 billion people, with 70% under 30. Nigeria alone will surpass the U.S. with 350 million people, and most of this growth will take place in Nigeria's north, its most impoverished region. Yet, young Africans will have similar life ambitions to young people everywhere. If their dreams are frustrated by conflict, misrule, or lack of opportunities, the results will be catastrophic. 
If, on the other hand, they encounter positive prospects and good governance, Africa's youth will be a dynamic force for global progress and prosperity. Mr. Chairman, the U.S. is well-placed to benefit from the second scenario, a well-governed, stable Africa providing opportunities to its people and welcoming U.S. businesses as partners in development is achievable. I saw this firsthand when I met in Abuja with some returning participants in the Young African Leaders Initiative, and I worked with another group last summer at Texas Tech University. They were some of the brightest and most impressive young people I have met anywhere and very favorably disposed towards our country and our principles. They are the future of Africa, not the corrupt dinosaurs who want to stay presidents for life, immaterial of the harm they cause their own people. If confirmed, I look forward to working with the committee to promote the types of U.S. policies which can help bring that about. And it is my pleasure and honor to introduce my dear wife of 47 years and my partner in diplomacy, Jane Naj, sitting right behind me. Thank you for being with us, and uh, thank you for that testimony, Mr. Shanker. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Menendez, members of the Senate Relations Committee, it's an honor to appear before you this morning as the nominee to become Assistant Secretary of State for Near East Affairs. I greatly appreciate the members of the committee making time in recent weeks to meet with me and exchange views. If confirmed, it would be my intention to engage in consultation with Congress routinely. I'd like to thank the President of the United States and Secretary of State Pompeo for my nomination. If confirmed, it would be an honor to serve our country at the Department of State. I'm grateful that, uh, some of my family members could join me this morning. My seemingly angelic children, Ethan and Dylan Shanker, are here. Uh, so is uh, my mother and stepfather, Linda and Abraham Davis, and my aunt and uncle, Jane and Ken Friedland. Uh, my father and stepmother, Michael and Judy Shanker, could not be here today, but are no doubt watching on the web. Let me also take this opportunity to thank my former bosses, mentors, and colleagues, without whose support I would not be here today. The portfolio of the Assistant Secretary of State for Near East Affairs is expansive. I have, in a sense, been preparing for this job for the past three decades. My academic background and the entirety of my professional career has been focused on the Middle East. I've spent four years living in the region. In the early 90s, I worked for a USAID contractor on projects in Egypt and Jordan. For the better part of two decades, I have researched and written about the region as a fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, a leading nonpartisan think tank. And from 2002 to 2006, I served as the Levant director in the office of the Secretary of Defense, advising senior policymakers at the Pentagon on Jordanian, Syrian, Lebanese, Israeli, and Palestinian affairs. Over these decades, I have had the privilege of knowing and working with many of the outstanding diplomats who have served with such distinction as Assistant Secretary of Near East Affairs. I worked with current Acting Assistant Secretary David Satterfield during the Bush administration. I traveled to Syria in 2004 with then Assistant Secretary William Burns. I know former Secret Assistant Secretary Ann Patterson. This is an illustrious and impressive cohort of diplomats who handled an incredibly difficult job with commitment and dedication. If confirmed, I would be humbled to be counted among this group. The responsibilities of the Assistant Secretary of State for Near East Affairs stretch from Morocco to Iran to Yemen. It is an AOR that faces enormous challenges, including failed states, horrific terrorism, acute humanitarian crises, and continued efforts by the regime in Tehran to destabilize the region. Given our critical alliances, the region's natural resources, its vital sea lanes, 
and the enormous potential of its population, it is also a region of great strategic import to the United States. At the front line confronting these challenges and taking advantage of the opportunities are the highly professional men and women of the U.S. Department of State's Near East Bureau. These foreign service officers and civil servants are dedicated and courageous. They make great sacrifices for our country. Over the past two decades, as a scholar at the Washington Institute and as a policy official serving the Department of Defense, I've worked closely with NEA and have great respect for both the professionalism and expertise of these career professionals. They work alongside their impressive colleagues from the U.S. military and from other departments whom I hold in the highest esteem and with whom I would seek to coordinate closely as possible. If confirmed, it would be a great privilege to serve alongside these American patriots, helping to advance and secure U.S. interests in the Middle East. There is a real need to strengthen alliances with our traditional partners, to defeat ISIS and other terrorist organizations, to confront and roll back destabilizing and pernicious Iranian behavior, and to work to build a more peaceful and secure region. The U.S. faces a series of complex strategic challenges in the Middle East, which require the application of all tools of American power to mitigate, and now, more than ever, especially diplomacy. As we know all too well, what happens in the Middle East doesn't stay in the Middle East. Washington's regional alliances are a force multiplier in safeguarding U.S. interests at home and abroad. They need to be nurtured through diplomatic engagement. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with this committee and with the Congress as a whole to address these and other national security challenges facing our country. I am grateful for your consideration of my nomination, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Again, we thank all three of you. Um, I'm going to reserve my time and turn to our ranking member, Senator Menendez. Next in line will be Senator Isaacson. I'm going to run, go vote, and come back. And uh, thank you. Okay. Well, thank you, Mr. Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you all for your uh, testimony. Admiral Harris, uh, as PACCOM commander, you were outspoken, rightly in my view, about the nature and extent of uh, North Korea's uh, nuclear threat. And, and that threat is real, right? It, it is real. Uh, so, do you think we no longer need to worry about North Korea's nuclear threat? No, Senator. I think we must continue to worry about the nuclear threat. I, I appreciate that because uh, I know the President said the other day that after Singapore we can sleep well because we no longer have to worry about North Korea's nuclear threat, but I didn't sleep much better. Uh, I, I understand that there's still nuclear warheads, there's still intercontinental ballistic missiles, there is still a nuclear fissile material development process. Uh, and so until that is dismantled, uh, I don't think we can rest uh, comfortably at the end of the day. Uh, let me ask you this also from your experience. Uh, do you think that it is important uh, to have military exercises between the United States uh, and South Korea as uh, our forces are there, I think about 28,000, and as uh, they ultimately prepare themselves for um, any defensive eventuality? Senator, in, in my previous capacity, I spoke very strongly about the need to continue on with military exercises, most notably in, uh, in 2017, but we were in a different place in 2017. You know, uh, North Korea was exploding uh, nuclear weapons. They were launching uh, ballistic missiles almost willy-nilly. Uh, and if war wasn't imminent, uh, it was certainly possible, maybe even likely. Uh, I think today, uh, following the, the president's summit with Kim Jong-un uh, in Singapore, I think we are in a dramatically different place. I think the, 
the whole landscape has shifted, uh, and I believe that uh, that uh, there we should give uh, exercises, major exercises, uh, a pause to see if uh, Kim Jong Un, uh, in fact, uh, is serious about his part of the negotiations. You know, I've spoken in the past about uh, you know the need to bring uh, Kim Jong Un to his senses. Uh, and not to his knees, and I think the president's efforts in uh, in Singapore uh, did just that. Do, do, do you think these are war games? Well, I mean, you can call. Uh, you know, I, I I think the president. Would you Would you, in your present role, call it war games? Uh, I will call them major exercises. Major exercises. Do you think they're provocative? Uh, I, I think that uh, they are. Uh, uh, they are certainly of concern uh, to North Korea uh, and to China. But we do them in order to exercise our ability to work and interoperate uh, with our South Korean allies. So when you go to our, uh, uh, as our ambassador, you'll, you'll have to be dealing with the South Koreans who have to be concerned that they didn't know about it, that the Japanese didn't know about it, and uh, that there is a real challenge uh, when these countries are a critical part of us ultimately coming to the end goal that we all desire and want to see. So uh, I, I think it's going to be critically important about how you speak about those issues when you get there. I agree, Senator. Uh, let me uh, turn to uh, Mr. Schenker. Uh, in the Countering American Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, uh, the Congress, signed into law by the President, required the administration to deliver a comprehensive Iran strategy by January of 2018. It is now June the 12th or so, and we have yet to receive a comprehensive strategy. If you are confirmed, and this has not been completed by that time, will you commit to the committee that you will work with the secretary to produce a comprehensive strategy on Iran that has to be delivered to the Congress according to law? Yes, sir. Now, let me ask you, well, what, what do you think are elements uh, of such a strategy? Uh, thank you, Senator. Uh, there are several uh, different elements. One would be, for example, uh, the diplomatic strategy, that is to work with our European partners uh, to get them on board. Uh, while we have some disagreements with our European allies, uh, we can all agree on that the nuclear uh, uh, development that the proliferation of, of missiles and the Iranian destabilizing, destabilizing regional activities uh, are all a problem. Um, so on the diplomatic front, the sanctions, um, and also um, maintaining, at least for the time being, the, the presence um, in Syria, which uh, prevents the establishment of uh, a land bridge, among other things, uh, for Iran to the, to the Mediterranean. Um, working with the U.S. military, uh, among other things, to prevent uh, the shipment of uh, uh, missile components to the Houthis, for example. Um, working uh, with our uh, with the government in in Iraq to try and establish a government that is uh, inclined toward uh, good relations with Washington, not wholly uh, wholly owned subsidiary of Tehran, etc. Oh, I appreciate that. I also hope we'll think about how our Gulf partners play a more strategic role than they have so far. Uh, I asked you in our private meeting, so and I warned you about the possibility of this question, so I'm not blindsiding you. Uh, would the purchase of the S-400 system uh, constitute a significant transaction with the Russian uh, defense sector, which is, there's public reports that Saudi Arabia and Qatar 
have been discussing purchasing the S-400. If either government proceeds with this acquisition, would this trigger cats or sanctions under Section 231? Senator, uh, uh, if confirmed, I would, I would make clear to Saudi Arabia and our allies, and, and thank you for your, your leadership on CATSA, by the way. Um, I would make clear to our allies and friends in the region that the sanctions um, are intended to, uh, uh, to uh, hold, uh, to uh, exact cost on Russia for its human, its human rights violations, for, uh, for its uh, behavior in Ukraine, for its meddling in, in U.S. elections. Um, uh, and I would work with our allies uh, to, um, to dissuade them or encourage them to um, avoid military purchases that would be potentially sanctionable. Um, in other words, I would tell Saudi Arabia not to do it. Um, and in I, fact appreci I appreciate that answer, and I appreciate your diplomacy and how you're trying to answer my question. But uh, I, I hope that, and I will leave it at this, that also Egypt seeking to purchase 50 fighter jets and 46 helicopters from Russia. These entities who are our allies must understand that under U.S. law, under CATSA, the purchase of such systems ultimately are sanctionable. And we will press very hard uh, on the question of pursuing those sanctions should they choose to do so. And I hope you'll communicate that in your role. Uh, absolutely, Senator. Uh, if confirmed, I will implement the law Thank you. My time has expired, but I will come back, uh, Ambassador. I don't want you to think left out of the process of my question. So, uh, uh, Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Senator Menendez. I appreciate it. And I agree with your comments about the Admiral. He is, he is ultimately qualified, very qualified, and we're a great nominee. And appreciate you all being here today. Is it Naj, is that correct? Yes, sir. President yes, Senator. <clears throat> Thank you for accepting a tremendous challenge in African affairs at the Department. Do you happen to know? one of your predecessors by the name of Johnny Carson? Yes, Senator, he is a, a good friend of mine. Well, I, of all the people I've got to know in my travels to Africa and the work I've done in Africa since I came to Congress, Johnny is the most knowledgeable, insightful, and most, most well-received American on the continent of Africa. So if you didn't know him, which I thought you did, but if you hadn't known, I wanted to make sure you do. And since you do know him, take advantage of him because he's a terrific asset. Absolutely. When uh, I was ambassador in Ethiopia, he was ambassador in Kenya. And uh... on the, on, you focused on the Sudan in part of your testimony. You mentioned the Sudan. Um, that is a horrible problem that's getting worse by the day. Uh, we've tried a special envoy. I knew General Gratian, the comprehensive peace agreement we worked on to get to finally get a referendum for independence, which we finally got, but it never did anything because the violence, the murder, the assassination, and the economic stealing from one another's assets have just destroyed the environment there. What, what, would you, what initiative would you try to move us to in South Sudan to go from a caretaker of, of chaos, which I think is what we are right now, to a caretaker of a route to peace and security? Uh, Senator, thank you for that question. Uh, in my view, South Sudan is one of the greatest tragedies in the world right now, and absolutely needless. It should never have happened, especially given the positive role the United States played in creating South Sudan. Uh, Senator, if confirmed, I promise you I will look for every pressure point possible, including the ones that have not yet been pushed, to make sure that those who are complicit in these tragedies uh, have to pay for that so that they don't have places where they can park their money, they don't have places where they can go and enjoy their vacations and go shopping. 
while their people are dying, uh, women are being raped, and people are going hungry and chased from their homes. I, I truly believe uh, that I would put that at the top of my inbox if confirmed. Well, it's going to take our leadership to do that. Al Bashir in the North is not going to be a help to us at all. He's not going to be a problem because he's indicted in the International Criminal Court, but he's not going to be a help to us. But the South Sudanese are doing a pretty good job of messing up by themselves, and we need to move them forward as much as we can. On that point also, last week, Nathaniel, who was a former intern of mine, who was a refugee to Clarkston, Georgia, about 15 years ago, is one of the lost boys of Sudan. He came to my office last week to share with me some of his experiences in the Sudan since he's gone back to try and bring help bring back that country. He said the biggest need that they have on the ground is a recognition by the public, the people of Sudan, that the United States is engaged, that the government of Sudan is, is getting engaged with them, and that we're going to be a part of moving Sudan forward. We evidently are not in that I, well, I asked him, I said, well, aren't we, aren't we visible now? And he said, not as visible as we should be. I think that's one of the things you're going to have to focus on to see the visibility of our country and our commitment to help them come out of their problems is there, but that they are willing to take a partnership with us to do that. Uh, Senator, I can promise you have confirmed the South Sudanese will realize just how involved uh, the United States is. Uh, being one of the few U.S. ambassadors who ever spent time in a refugee camp as a refugee and not just a visitor, uh, I am passionate about refugee issues. Well, you're going to do a great job, and I'm certain that Africa is a great – Africa is the continent of the 21st century for the United States. In many ways, the population explosion, as you refer to in Nigeria, which will be bigger than the United States by the half, half point of this century. It's important we have them as friends, but it's important we help them grow economically. And using AGOA, which you also referred to in your remarks, is a way to do that. Senator Coons, who was here, and I, two years ago on, in the work on AGOA, used that as a lever to get the South Africans to open South Africa to, to domestic poultry, which happens to be the biggest export of Georgia and Delaware, which is why Senator Coons and I were interested in the first place. But the point is, we can use our, they want to do business with America, we need to use our assets and use that trade agreement to open more doors of opportunity for Africans, but more doors of opportunity for Americans too. Absolutely, Senator. I, I agree with you totally. My, my last point on, not my last point, but the last point I won't have time to really talk about, I want to go to, to South Korea. The uh, questions on the, there have been some questions of what the president offered when he offered to suspend or temporarily postpone or postpone the, the second round of exercises in South Korea this year, pending the North Koreans beginning to exercise, do what they need to do on the agreement that they've made with America at, uh, Sing at Singapore. As one that was served in the military, and then I was in the Air Force, we had ORIs all the time, Ordnance Readiness Inspections, where we were in the, in the, at the drop of a hat and a phone call, called to come and go through an exercise as if we were at war, but we, were, of course, weren't. Some would call it a war game. Some would call it an exercise, whatever. Does putting off or postponing what would have otherwise been a regularly scheduled exercise in any way da damage our readiness in that part of the world? Um, Senator, for short periods of time, no. Uh, but I believe, without knowing with any certainty, I believe the president was referring to major exercises. The vice president has, has stated since then uh, that regular readiness and training uh, evolutions will continue. And so I view that uh, in, in terms of the ORI that you mentioned and uh, service-related exercises and things like that will continue. But I don't know that for a fact, and uh, uh, you know that, that would be up to the Department of Defense to determine uh, what is uh, uh, allowable under the, the new construct. 
but I, I'm, I'm convinced, uh, and I know the administration has underscored, uh, that our alliance commitments to South Korea remain ironclad uh, and have not changed. I agree with you, and I, I, I'm not good on acronyms either, and ORI is an old acronym because I'm an old American soldier, so believe me, it could be a new name by now. But I think it's, a, it's not the type of exercise they were referring to in the agreement at Singapore. But there's no place in, in the world that we are better prepared with manpower and investment and infrastructure than in South Korea to carry through on any commitment we have to the South Korean people or the people of Japan or any other people in that part of the Pacific realm. Would you agree with that? I, I, I would, sir. And I don't think suspending a, a uh, temporary in exercise in any way diminishes our ability to continue to do everything we've promised to do and have partnered with those countries to, do to, to enjoy the peace and security of freedom in that part of the world. Uh, I, I agree, Senator. I, I think that we, need to, we do need to create some breathing space uh, for the negotiations to continue and to assess whether Kim Jong-un is serious uh, on his part of the deal or not, uh, and I think this gives us that opportunity. Well, as my World War II Navy captain, father-in-law, William Davison, who flew in the South Pacific for 20 years, used to say, if you got a tough job to do, give it to the Navy. So right. we're going to give you a tough job, <laughs> and I'm sure you can do it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Isaacs and Senator Shane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations, and thank you to each of you for your nominations and for your willingness to serve, and thank you to your families also for being willing to make that kind of a commitment. Admiral Harris, I want to follow up on the Senator Isaacson's question about the military exercises, not in terms of what that might do to readiness, but what the message is that that sends to um, not just our allies in the region, but also to our adversaries. And can you, um, there have been news reports about China's um, pleasure at our announcing this kind of a concession. Can you, do you agree that this is a benefit to China? Uh, I, I think it's uh, too early to tell, uh, Senator, if it's a benefit to, to China or not. Uh, I do know that the Chinese Foreign Minister uh, Wang uh, said that uh, this was uh, creating new history, uh, but uh, President Moon as well talked about uh, the talks being the talks of the century. Uh, and so I, I think that South Korea is looking at this in a positive way, uh, this being the, uh, the summit. Uh, and I believe that, that we are, in fact, in a new landscape uh, with North Korea. Uh, for the first time, uh, certainly in, in, in my career, uh, we're at a place where uh, peace is a possibility. And, and I think we should be encouraged by that. Uh, I've said before that, that we can be hopeful and we can even be optimistic as long as we are realistic also. Uh, and I'm convinced that the administration is, is, uh, has that realism uh, at heart uh, as we move forward uh, in this new place that we're in. And if if we do, if we are able to successfully move forward towards denuclearization, will South Korea still face a conventional military threat from North Korea and a cyber threat? Is, do you think those issues should be part of negotiations around denuclearization? I, I, I think ultimately uh, 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 all of those things should be on the table. You know, right now we're focused, and rightfully so, uh, on the nuclear aspects uh, of, the, uh, of the North Korean capability. Uh, but ultimately, you know, we, we seek peace on the peninsula. Uh, no one has a greater stake on peace on the peninsula than South Korea. I mean, they're the ones that, that went to war uh, and are still technically at war with the North. 
And, and I think that that, that encompasses uh, all uh, 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 types of capabilities uh, that the North has. But we start with the nuclear piece. That's the one that threatens uh, the region as well as uh, parts of the United States, potentially all of the United States. Uh, and, uh, and we start there. Uh, and then we, we work for peace on the peninsula uh, uh, writ large. Thank you. Mr. Shanker, as I'm sure you're aware, yesterday the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen began an offensive to take the port city of Hodeida. There are um, dramatic reports about what this assault will mean for people in Yemen, uh, the number of people who will be killed. Uh, the UN has pulled out all of their uh, humanitarian personnel there and have suggested, the UN envoy has suggested that this is a major impediment to efforts to bring parties to the table to have a peaceful uh, resolution in Yemen. Should the United States be doing more to urge the Saudi-led coalition to stop that invasion and to come to the table? Thank you, Senator. Uh, it's my understanding that uh, the United States had uh, advised uh, the, uh, the, the Yemeni, sorry, the uh, uh, Emirati and Saudi forces not to go to Hodeidah. <clears throat> the secretary, as you know, made a, a statement a few days ago on this, uh, recognizing not only the security concerns of the, of the Saudis and the Emiratis, but also um, holding the Emiratis and the Saudis to their humanitarian commitments. Um, I am very concerned about the impact of, um, of the move on Hodeidah. Um, as you know, 22 out of 30 million uh, Yemenis are food insecure. Hudeda is the largest port for humanitarian and commercial goods going to the country. If there was an interruption, um, that would be very serious to the, to the Yemeni people. Um, uh, if confirmed, I would make every effort to get all the parties to the table with uh, the, the envoy, uh, Martin Griffiths, immediately. That would be a, a, a top priority, yes. And are there other... Um tools that we have, incentives, um, disincentives that we have that we should be using that we're not currently using? Senator, I don't know. Uh, I haven't been privy to the deliberations or the representations with the Saudis and, and the Emiratis. Uh, I think there there's more that can be done in terms of incentives. I, I'd, I'd have to, uh, let's say, uh, uh, to consult with, uh, with colleagues at, at DOD if, concern, if confirmed. Um, but yes, I think there, there are ways to encourage them. Thank you. As I'm sure you're aware, this committee has weighed in on the Yemen, Yemeni conflict in a way that suggests that um, we should put more pressure on the Saudi-led coalition. So I certainly appreciate your commitment to do that, if confirmed. Um, are you aware, Mr. Shanker, that the State Department is withholding $200 million in stabilization funding for Syria in areas that have previously been controlled by ISIS? Uh, yes, Senator. Can you explain what the reasoning is behind that? Uh, my understanding is that the administration is conducting uh, an assessment uh, of this aid to determine uh, what of this is appropriate and perhaps inappropriate. Um, it's my general view that groups such as the White Helmets are doing outstanding and, and important work, um, and um, and other. Um, other uh, recipients of U.S. funding, uh, local councils, et cetera, um, who had been receiving money uh, or doing important work to create the conditions in, in local communities that would prevent uh, the reemergence of ISIS 2.0, for example. Um, but 
I don't have any visibility into the, the mm -hmm. ongoing administration review, but um, uh, if confirmed, I would be happy to, to come talk to you about it. Um, I appreciate that. Can you also, beyond um, eliminating ISIS, can you discuss what you believe is the United States policy in Syria and what our long-term strategy is? Um, well, I can, I can take a shot at it. Um, <laughs> um, Senator, uh, we have troops in Syria right now that are working with our allies there uh, doing excellent work to, uh, to uh, defeat the remaining pockets uh, of ISIS out in the east. Um, they're also uh, helping to train local security forces, doing uh, ordnance disposal, humanitarian demining, um, and generally working to create the conditions whereby ISIS 2.0, uh, follow-on groups, Al-Qaeda, uh, don't uh, return. Um, all this is very important work. Um, while the U.S. forces are there, there's another benefit, which is that I think it strengthens the U.S. hand and its representations with Moscow over the future disposition um, of, of Syria. Um, long term, the president has said we, we intend to depart. Um, uh, my understanding there are, is that there's deliberations within the administration as to, to when that will, will occur. Um, the administration is, appears to still be um, committed uh, to uh, the end of, the Assad, of Assad himself. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator, Senator Portman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, and first to Admiral Harris, thank you for your willingness to serve. I enjoyed our meeting together, and I've enjoyed our meetings over the years, including uh, briefings you've given us uh, in your role as uh, PACOM commander, and you're going at a critical time, obviously, not just for Korea, but for the region and the world, and you're going to be part of a new team. You're going to be part of the, uh, the Pompeo team now, uh, and as you say, you have a lot of background and experience on the military side, which will be very helpful. Uh, I, I do think that we have a real opportunity here, and there's an opening. We need to be clear-eyed, uh, as you and I have discussed, about what the challenges are. We certainly, based on experience, uh, cannot be trusting of what uh, North Korea says in terms of their commitments, because they've made commitments in the past that they haven't honored. But it is an opportunity, and I do believe that we ought to give the President and the Administration the space to be able to negotiate what could be an historic agreement with regard to the Korean Peninsula and the denuclearization that all of us hope for. I want to follow up on China just for a second because you uh, heard from Senator Shaheen that uh, perhaps China has a little different view than we do uh, about what the future ought to look like, particularly uh, as I look at it, not just about our, uh, our nuclear uh, presence on the peninsula uh, because we do provide that nuclear umbrella, but also our troops and also exercises. Um, are you concerned that China will push for the North Koreans to demand the withdrawal, the total withdrawal of U.S. troops uh, in Korea, or redeployment of the THAAD missile defense system as a condition that, in my view, would weaken America's military posture in the region? And if so, how would you deal with that? Senator, I, I, don't, I don't know how China will uh, react with regard to, uh, to pressuring North Korea uh, as a negotiating partner of the United States. Uh, I do know, uh, based on my previous uh, job, uh, that uh, China uh, is very unhappy uh, with the placement of the THAAD missile system, the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense Missile System, in South Korea. Uh, but that was an alliance decision uh, taken up by both the Republic of Korea and the United States together. And I think it's important, it's critical, that the decisions as we go forward here in this new place that we're in that the decisions that we make with regard to troop levels, uh, with regard to 
exercises, uh, and with regard to everything else that affects the alliance, that those decisions be taken together with our South Korean ally. Mm -hmm. now, these must be alliance decisions uh, and not unilateral decisions. And so my, I think my, uh, one of the jobs that I'll have, uh, if confirmed as, as the ambassador, uh, is to implement policy uh, that comes from Washington, that comes from the Secretary of State uh, and the President, and also to stay synchronized uh, with our South Korean ally. And, and, and that's, that's, that, that'll be uh, the good work of uh, diplomacy, I believe. Speaking of that for a moment, the interoperability between the U.S. forces and the ROK forces is obviously a, a critical part of uh, the security there. And my understanding is that President Moon has voiced support for an early transfer of wartime control of operational forces, uh, the OPCOM forces, from the United States to South Korea. In other words, taking away operational control from the U.S. Um, is that a good idea? Are they ready? Uh, at, at some point, uh, they'll be ready. I mean, this is... Are they uh, ready now? Uh, they're not ready today. Uh, we, uh, the OPCON transfer, uh, uh, is, uh, uh, the transfer of operational control, OPCON transfer, uh, we have agreed with uh, South Korea mm -hmm. that it must be conditions-based. Uh, and when those conditions are, are met rather than time-based, uh, then uh, they'll be ready to do that. Uh, that's hard work that's, un that's uh, ongoing right now. Uh, between U.S. Forces, Korea, uh, Pacific Command, uh, and DOD to work with their counterparts uh, in, uh, uh, in Korea to determine those conditions and when those conditions will be met. Putting on your, uh, your new State Department hat, and I'm uh, confident you'll be confirmed, and I'm pleased again you stepped up to do this, uh, what do you think our posture to be with regard to human rights abuses in North Korea? Uh, as you and I have discussed, I come from Ohio, very involved in the release of Otto Warmbier and the abhorrent behavior he received at the hands of the North Koreans is something we can never forget. Uh, but there are many North Koreans who have also uh, been uh, subject to human rights abuses, including war camps. Should that be part of any agreement with North Korea? Uh, I, I, I think human rights uh, should be a part of uh, discussions. Uh, the President did raise them. Uh, and as a nation, uh, and certainly as a department, uh, we were very concerned with the gross uh, human rights violations uh, evidenced uh, by uh, the North Korean regime. Mm -hmm. Thank you again, Admiral Harris, and, and uh, we wish you the best of luck. Uh, you're going to be a critical part of these negotiations going forward. Uh, Mr. Shanker, just briefly, and I've got to run go vote. I'm probably holding things up over there. Um, what do you think the prospects are for Iran and other parties to continue implementing the JCPOA? This is the Iran agreement that America has now withdrawn from. Um, would it be the administration's intent uh, that we continue to work with our European allies to come up with a new agreement? What would be your view on that? Uh, Senator, I'd, uh, thank you for the question. I, uh, I don't know what the, the, where the administration is at on that exactly. Um, it seems to me that uh, that uh, the Europeans can make their own decisions on, on whether to pull out or not, um, but that the secondary sanctions um, that will be imposed on, on companies that are, are doing business um, may eventually make the Iranians leave. Um, I don't know how this is going to play out, um, but it seems that the main priority of the administration, and if confirmed, one of my main priorities will be um, getting a new agreement that incorporates all the elements, whether it's uh, Iranian nuclear, um, Iranian countering Iranian destabilizing uh, regional behavior, and the missile proliferation. Yeah, destabilizing behavior, I think, is the part that we, we missed. And look what's happened in the last several years with regard 
to Hezbollah in Syria in particular, but also as we see in Yemen and elsewhere. Um, I run, need to go run vote, and my time has almost expired. Uh, Mr. Naj, lots of questions for you, but I want to follow, if I could, in writing on the Okavanga Delta uh, legislation that we're trying to work on here in the Senate and get your input on that. Sure. And uh, I thank you all for your willingness to serve. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, sir. Senator Cardin. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and let me thank all three of our nominees. You all have had very distinguished careers, and uh, we very much appreciate your willingness to serve in positions that are so critically important at this time on foreign policy and national security issues, and we thank your families for, for your willingness. Uh, I, I, I want to start on some of my colleagues have already talked about the dimension of human rights and uh, making sure that that's a top priority in uh, your uh, responsibilities, whether it's, it's, it's a one country in South Korea or the regions of Africa or the Near East. So uh, I'm going to start with Ambassador Nage. Uh, and I told you outside that you might get off, but let me, uh, let me start with you if I might. Uh, you, the comment you made about leaders in Africa wanting to hold on to power rather than allow their countries to develop, I thought was a very poignant point. And I couldn't agree more with that, with that assessment. So, so let me talk about a country where they have a new leader, which is Ethiopia. Uh, you're, you're, you're familiar with that country. Uh, I had the uh, opportunity uh, to, um, to meet uh, with um, uh, one of the distants who was in town this, this week who has been arrested and has had uh, uh, some serious issues. Uh, he's a pretty brave person. Uh, and uh, there is some reason, I guess, for some optimism that maybe there's going to be some change. But uh, we haven't seen the, it demonstrated yet as far as the safety of, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the, the activists in the country. Can you just give me your assessment as to how the United States can play a constructive role in Ethiopia? Thank you very much, Senator. I am uh, extremely optimistic about Ethiopia. I have seen Ethiopia at its worst during my first tour there during the uh, awful Marxist dictatorship. Then I saw it somewhat better uh, when I was ambassador, uh, looking at Ethiopia in an evolutionary uh, manner. The new prime minister I'm very encouraged by. In my view, he may be the first generation that will actually be willing to allow itself to be voted out of office which I think is a huge step going forward. I've also been very encouraged by recent steps that he has taken, most especially uh, just in the last couple of days, the uh, agreement to implement the peace treaty with Eritrea, which is going to be quite difficult uh, given internal Ethiopian pressures. So overall, Ethiopia has uh, had major human rights problems in the past. Uh, I'm encouraged that each year it will get uh, better and better and if confirmed, I will certainly engage very strongly with Ethiopia, uh, given my own history with that country, to make sure it goes forward. And I, I just hope that we will be pretty tough, tough on this. We've seen where in other countries like Burma, where we thought they were on a path, they made an abrupt change in direction. Uh, the safety issues in Ethiopia are real, so I, I, would, I would hope that you would continue to, to do that. Mr. Schenker, I want to talk a little bit. We had a chance to talk about this. I know Senator Shaheen raised the port issues in regards to Yemen. Uh, Yemen is a major humanitarian crisis now, and it's complicated as to how we can get help to the people. Uh, there's clearly outside forces trying to prevent that from happening, but we don't have the sensitivity that we believe is necessary 
from, uh, from the, uh, the Saudis or UAE. Uh, obviously, they have security concerns. We understand that. There are outside forces causing a lot of these problems. How much more aggressive can we be to make sure the people of Yemen get the need, help they need? Thanks, Senator. Um, I think more can be done, uh, certainly. We have um, UNVIM in there, the UN Verification and Inspection Team, which uh, has, I think, provided some bit of assurance to the Saudis and the UAE that contraband weapons are not arriving for the Houthis in these ports. Um, uh, it perhaps can be, uh, we can pressure uh, parties there to, uh, to bring in cargo planes into Sana directly. Um, yeah, that may ameliorate some of the situation, but it's a very, I think, complex and, and, uh, and difficult situation. Hudeda um, itself, um, even if um, Hudeda shut down, they have Salif, which is north of there, but the road from Salif goes through Hudeda to go east. Um, so I think um, more can be done and, and pressured on our allies. They have made commitments um, to, uh, to meet the standard to Martin Griffith of, of uh, humanitarian goods getting into the country. I, I think you can play a really critical role here because there, there's a lot of activity by UAE and the kingdom here in, in Washington and, and uh, there, there's a lot of engagement. I think it's important that it, they get a very clear message as to the importance of being as strong as possible in regards to humanitarian aid. So I appreciate your, your statements on that. Thanks, Senator. Admiral Harris, I want to talk a little bit about North Korea. I wasn't going to let you go without that. Most of the experts that we've had before this committee, we have had outside experts that were in the administration. We haven't had yet the administration's people here have said that the very first thing you need to do, if there's going to be any confidence that North Korea is going to give up their nuclear weapons, you have to have a declaration. You got to know what, what's going on in North Korea. You got to know the venues. You got to know the activities. You got to have inspectors in to, to verify what the starting point is. And then you need not just a statement that you're going to end the nuclear program, but you need a game plan which is realistic for the dismantling of their nuclear program from beginning to end, including the delivery systems. That's what the experts that have testified before this committee said is the first step, the first step, not the final step, but the first step in achieving our objectives. We have not heard anything about that from the Singapore summit, but do you agree with that assessment that if we're going to be able to have success, we need to know where we're starting from? Uh, sure, Senator, but I, I believe that the, the, the first step has to be uh, a meeting, right? And, and so we had that meeting, and I think we should... Um, but we've had meetings before, maybe not directly. Right, but, but not, had, not meetings at this level, uh, not, not no, meetings no, with that's, the president. That's correct, but we've had high-level meetings in sure. the past and commitments in the past, and we've never had a declaration, we never really have had our eyes on exactly what they have and an understanding on how you dismantle it. And I agree with you completely in, in, in the way you formulated that. I think that, uh, that after the, the meeting, you know, the president uh, said that, that uh, the meeting, the summit in Singapore wasn't uh, designed to solve all issues all at once, uh, but to be a starting point uh, for serious negotiations. 
And that's the next step, are those serious negotiations to establish the modalities for what a complete, uh, verifiable, and irreversible denuclearization means uh, and how we're going to go about doing that. But that's, that's the work of the, uh, of the, of the negotiating teams uh, and the experts uh, in, in denuclearization, of which we have many in, in the United States, uh, scientific experts that have done this in the past and other places, that we, sh we need to rely on them uh, to help us get to that point where we can be satisfied uh, that North Korea has denuclearized. I know the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy uh, Agency, has also come uh, up uh, and said they would be, they are ready to help uh, should, uh, should they come to that. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Thank you, Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Menendez, uh, for holding this important hearing. And to our three distinguished witnesses and your families, uh, we are blessed to have uh, men of your experience and strength and character uh, willing to continue serving our country. And uh, I'm grateful for the opportunities I've had to meet with you before. Uh, Admiral Harris and Ambassador Naj, thank you so much for our conversation yesterday, Mr. Schenker. Uh, and I look forward to supporting uh, your nominations. Uh, if confirmed, uh, which I expect you to be, you will confront some of the greatest challenges the United States faces around the world from North Korea and the Indo-Pacific uh, and strengthening and sustaining our vital partnership with our ally South Korea uh, to embracing the opportunity of the continent of Africa while also confronting uh, terrorism and humanitarian crises to the very real uh, challenges and risks of Iran, uh, Syria, and the Middle East. You have a full plate. Um, the Trump administration has given... Uh, high priority to addressing strategic competition with China in Africa. Uh, Senator Corker and I have worked hard on a bipartisan bill called the BUILD Act that will create a new development finance institution, which we hope will be marked up here next week. Uh, if realized, this new DFI uh, would shape U.S. efforts to counterbalance uh, China's growing economic influence on the continent. I'm encouraged the White House has expressed strong support for it. Uh, Ambassador Naj, if the BUILD Act passes into law, how could you use this new tool to promote international development and advance U.S. foreign policy interests in Africa? Thank you very much, Senator. Um, if it passes into law, it would be, in my view, a tremendous asset for us to use, especially regarding when you mention China. Because in talking about China's activities in Africa, we can, we can make the list of all the negative impacts. But the big so what question there is, so what do we displace it with? How do we replace it with? How do we get more American businesses involved in getting into Africa? Uh, I, I know the large businesses have no problems, the multinationals, uh, but it, when I was in West Texas, so many companies came to me and said, we're interested in investing in Africa, the, the dairies, the soybeans, and the others. How can we do it? We're afraid to do that because uh, it's not a level playing field. If we get into a dispute, we're going to lose. That type of an act would be absolutely perfect to complement the other side of warning African governments about China's activities and extraction and indebtedness and all the other things. Thank you, Ambassador. It's my hope uh, that we'll deliver that tool uh, to you and to uh, other folks uh, who represent us around the world in partnership with USAID to advance development and security. Let me move to a country where we have an opportunity uh, to advance democracy in a very real way uh, and where they are watching very closely uh, what is said and done here, Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. uh, I recently had a chance to lead a bipartisan CODEL. Um, Senators Flake and uh, Senator Booker uh, were also with me where we visited with South African Zimbabwe, both of which have relatively new presidents. Uh, and as you know, on July 30, there will be an election in Zimbabwe. Um, prospects for democracy there are uncertain. 
uh, in our lengthy one-on-one -on -one meeting with President Nangagwa, uh, he said all the right things, and he has publicly continued to say and do good things, but there are significant um, unaddressed barriers to their um, restoration of full participation in the community of nations. Um, Senator Flake and I introduced an amendment uh, to Zadera, the Zimbabwe Democracy and Recovery uh, Act. Uh, do you agree the United States should not relieve sanctions on Zimbabwe until the government takes concrete actions to demonstrate its respect for human rights, its commitment to free and fair elections, and to pursuing a genuine anti-corruption uh, measures and a rules-based economy? Absolutely, Senator. Actions speak so much louder than words, and we just have to wait to see what happens there. One of the core actions we could take would be to send an American ambassador. In your own experience, you were once recalled uh, from retirement to serve as our ambassador in Nigeria. Uh, we have a nominee now from the administration who we might be able to get through this committee and the floor in a month, thus would arrive in Harare a week before a generationally significant election. Um, would you recommend um, that the department look for a seasoned, experienced former ambassador to send, as well as moving forward as fast as we can to confirm a new ambassadorial nominee? Senator, if confirmed, uh, once I can look at all the details and the informations, I promise you, um, if, if I believe that that would be a solution, I will move as quickly as possible for that. Because in my own case, it, it really did help. Uh, to spend some time there in Nigeria. Well, ha having someone with the, the length of service and range of experiences and relationships you have is going to be a terrific opportunity for us, but I am concerned about the press of time in a country that has a once-in-a-generation chance to get this right. Admiral Harris, if I might, I just uh, wanted to both commend you for your long service uh, and your wife's long service in the United States Navy uh, and to welcome you and to thank you for your willingness to take on this job. Um, Will you ensure um, that talks with North Korea don't destabilize the Korean Peninsula at the expense of expanding Chinese influence? My concern is that there's a very real prospect here of our making the strategic mistake of canceling exercises, withdrawing American troops without having um, a clear and verifiable and irreversible path towards denuclearization. And I'll just echo something Senator Portman asked you previously. I just met with North Korean uh, human rights activists uh, and uh, folks who defected recently over many years. Should the government of South Korea, with our partnership, be playing a role in advocating for human rights in North Korea as well, and should that be a central part of our advocacy with regards to North Korea? Thanks, uh, Senator. Uh, if, if confirmed, uh, I will do uh, all of those things that you said. Uh, and uh, uh, with regard to human rights, uh, I believe that uh, the, the government of the Republic of Korea, the South Korea, uh, has a big role to play in, um, uh, in, in the issue of human rights uh, and, and the gross violations uh, by the North. Uh, also, there are the issues of the abductions uh, uh, of Japanese citizens, uh, and the President raised those uh, issues uh, uh, in his uh, discussions. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a positive as well. Let me close by saying uh, to Mr. Schenker, if I might, a number of us on a bipartisan basis sent a letter to the President urging that he not precipitously withdraw U.S. forces from Syria uh, out of a concern that the vacuum uh, created if we were to withdraw would both uh, significantly uh, put at risk or gravely harm uh, our allies who worked with us, our partners uh, in uh, combat against ISIS, and that that vacuum would simply be filled by Iranian proxies. Um, is it your view that our departure from the ground in Syria would create a significant vacuum and we'd be at risk of having Iranian proxies simply fill that vacuum? Uh, Senator, thank you. I, 
I am concerned about withdrawing precipitously. I think we have to make the decision um, based on conditions on the ground and um, in conjunction with what the combatant commanders say is appropriate. Thank you. I appreciate your previous comment as well that the White Helmets do terrific work. Uh, I was concerned by the um, hold on funds to them and hope that uh, you'll also be able to make uh, progress in releasing those vital humanitarian funds that support a number of different NGOs and, and vital work in Syria. Thank you all for your testimony and your willingness to serve, and I look forward to working with you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Rubio. And I'm going to go vote, um, and then we'll have Senator Kane, who will follow you. Okay, thank you. It's perfect. I can go as long as I want now. <laughs> Um, uh, but thank you all for being here. Thank you for your willingness to serve. I, I wanted to begin with you, Admiral Harris. You have a deep amount of experience in the Indo-Pacific region. And, and just to ask kind of a very basic question, you, you may have already been asked this, but just on your experience from the region, you would agree that perhaps the leading, if not the leading, one of the leading reasons why what we saw earlier this week was even possible, Kim Jong-un you know, looking for a meeting and so forth, is because there was serious doubts he had serious doubts about whether they could attach, whether they could attach a warhead to a missile before the economy collapsed. They were in a race between being able to prove that capability and economic collapse that threatened the regime, and they had significant doubts and perhaps were convinced that the collapse would come before attaching it, and they needed to kind of try to stop that from occurring. Thanks, Senator. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure you know, what is going on in Kim Jong-un's mind. Uh, but I do believe that it's the force of the maximum pressure campaign uh, plan uh, uh, that was led by the State Department uh, and the uh, enforcement of UN sanctions, uh, pretty harsh uh, sanctions uh, by uh, many countries, uh, including China. Uh, I think the, the force of those sanctions uh, and the maximum campaign uh, pressure campaign uh, is what brought uh, Kim Jong-un uh, to the negotiating table in Singapore. Right, and I only raise that because in the context of all the other stuff that's going on, how many flags they had and all this other thing, these are all certainly relevant to some extent. But ultimately, at the core, the single most important thing that got him to the table and will keep him at the table is, is these sanctions, this pressure. And as long as that pressure is there, that's the, that's the one thing they desperately need to figure out. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, I am concerned that, that China uh, is starting to uh, relax uh, sanctions and they want uh, a further relaxation of sanctions by all the parties. Uh, I think it's important that we maintain those sanctions until we can uh, come to the point where we believe that Kim Jong-un is serious uh, about uh, the negotiations uh, and the ultimate aim uh, of the talks, uh, which is to have that complete verifiable and irreversible uh, denuclearization. Well, if, if confirmed, and I believe you will be, um, I think one of the fundamental tasks that you will play will be a very critical one, because one of the biggest dangers in all of this is going to be an um, attempt on the part of the Chinese and the North Koreans to split the United States and South Korea. As we know, there is an inflated public expectation in South Korea about what this deal could mean. And here's my concern. My concern is we reach a point in that they're able to drag this thing out into an extended and protracted talks, that at some point there are offers being made that South Korea is saying these ideas are fine by us, but they're not good for the United States. 
and that that split between the U.S. and South Korea would undermine the international sanctions. The international community, the U.N., would say, well, if South Korea is okay with this, North Korea is okay with this, and China is okay with this, then the United States is being unreasonable and that that could undermine the international sanctions. So I think that's going to be an enormous part of your responsibility is to prevent that split from happening. In particular, I'm concerned about a push that would say something like, uh, well, we go have a deal, but in order for us to um, do some concession short of denuclearization, we want us to be step by step. We do something, you do something. And in that sort of negotiation, step by step, two of those steps along the way towards a final deal would be, number one, we want you to have a significant reduction in troops. And the other is we want you to remove the missile defense system from South Korea. And each of those steps would be met by some reciprocal concession short of denuclearization. But it would show progress. And the South Korean government, given this expectation, could come forward and say, well, we're in agreement with that. And then the world would say to the United States, well, they're all in agreement with it. You guys are being unreasonable by not agreeing with it. So I think there's a real danger of a protracted process here uh, where they are able to gain very valuable concessions, some of which directly benefit. The Thad pre presence in South Korea, its removal would deeply benefit China and, frankly, even Russia, um, but would be against our national interests. But it might be something that the South Koreans would look favorably on in a step-by-step -step process. And we are now casting the role of the bad guys who are standing in the way of a, of a deal that yet to be consummated. So I just truly believe that one of the most important functions you will play will be to ensure that that split never happens, that we do not allow, as part of this negotiation, that they create a gap between us and South Korea as part of the negotiating tactic. And I believe that part of your challenges you will face is an incredible amount of expectation um, and the, and the, and the, uh, within South Korea and the amount of political capital that the president, has, the president of South Korea has put on this deal being successful. And I was curious whether you shared that view as a risk and, and how, what your views would be about ensuring that that split doesn't happen. Thanks, uh, Senator. I, I, I do believe that uh, it is important that we stay synchronized and aligned with our ally uh, in South Korea. Uh, and that the decisions that we make regarding you know, troop levels or, or the terminal high altitude air defense system and, and any other thing that could come out of the negotiations, that those decisions that we make, that we undertake, are alliance decisions, are decisions that are made with our South Korean ally and, and not unilaterally. Uh, and they need to make the, their decisions based on the alliance as well. Just like the decision to put the THAAD into South Korea was an alliance decision, uh, I believe uh, that is important. And I, th I think that that is one of the roles that, that uh, I'll have, uh, as you said, uh, if confirmed, uh, is to stay synchronized and aligned uh, with the leaders uh, in South Korea. Can I ask because of your background there, obviously, in that command? The existence of a missile defense system in South Korea, separate, even if North Korea did not have long-range missiles and nuclear capability, would it still be in the national security interest of the United States to have a missile defense presence in South Korea and in the Indo-Pacific region beyond the North Korea threat? Yeah. Senator, based on uh, my previous job, we put the, the THAAD uh, uh, ballistic missile defense system uh, in South Korea with South Korea, uh, that alliance decision, because of the threat from North Korea. Uh, it is not there for anything from uh, China or Russia or anywhere else. It's, it's based solely uh, on the ballistic missile threat from North Korea. So there would be no justification for it if there wasn't no North Korean? 
I, I don't think there'd be a justification is not the issue. I think there would be no need for it. I mean, it is there. It, it's a very tactical system designed for ballistic missiles coming from uh, North Korea. Towards the mainland of the United States? No, no, no. The THAAD is there for uh, ballistic missiles coming to South Korea. It's there for the defense uh, of uh, the Americans in South Korea or South Korean uh, uh, allies uh, uh, and the people there. Okay. Senator Kane. Thank you to my colleagues, and uh, thank you and congratulations to the nominees. I think this is a, a very, very impressive panel of nominees. I want to say that Admiral Harris, you know, my, my worry as a member of the Armed Services Committee when you last appeared before us to complete your time at PACOM was that I'd never have an opportunity again to torment you across a witness table. I'm glad to see that those opportunities are not coming to an end. Um, to Ambassador Naj, I, I have to say, of any resume I've ever seen of anybody, I'm giving you the best resume. Uh, born in Hungary and a member of the Communist Youth Pioneers as a youngster. Until, until your father got a death uh, a sentence and you guys left the country. Uh, you've been involved in three political campaigns for president, Barry Goldwater, Mitt Romney, and Barack Obama. That's an unusual hat trick. <laughs> there are not a lot who, who would say that. Um, and some others. And your, your tremendous service in Africa, your multiple language fluencies. I, I, you are the most interesting man in the world. Um, <laughs> uh, but I will tell you, the thing about the resume I like the best, those of you out in the audience didn't have a chance to read this, listen to this sentence. He failed the Foreign Service exam the first time he took it, but passed in 1977. Who puts that in their resume? A very confident person mm -hmm. who is attributing success to the most important element, which is persistence. Look at the career, being an ambassador twice and now being nominated, and you put that front and center. That's a very, very much to your credit. My questions are going to be for Mr. Shanker. Thank you for the opportunity to visit in the office and your work. I am the ranking member on the SFRC subcommittee that kind of coincides with your area of responsibility. In your professional expertise, I'm not asking about administration policy, I'm talking about your professional expertise working in this area. Do you think a peace deal between Israel and Palestine, two states for two people living in peace, is still a possibility? Or have facts, you know, violence from Gaza against Israel or Israeli settlements into the West Bank, have facts eclipsed the possibility of a two-state peace deal? Thank you, Senator. It's a pleasure meeting with you as well. Um, no, I think it's still a possibility. Uh, but I think it depends on the, the wills of the party. Um, you know, the, ultimately, any solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is going to be determined by the parties. Uh, the United States has a role in facilitating those negotiations, but both parties have to be ready to make uh, the sacrifices necessary. Let me ask you this. Um, do you think it should still be U.S. policy now to promote under the right circumstances, as you point out, it's the will of the parties, but to promote that as the ideal, which has been U.S. policy since the U.N. first recognized the state of Israel. Do you think that should be our policy? Uh, I, I do. What do you think Israel must do to make that possibility a reality, in your professional opinion, not Senator, I don't, State Department? Uh, I don't want to you know, prejudge the negotiations. Uh, I, and I, I haven't been privy um, at all to any of the internal 
administration deliberations, what uh, Jared Kushner and uh, uh, Jason Greenblatt have been And I'm, I'm not really asking you about the administration. I'm, you, you are an expert in this field. You lived there. You've studied there. You're fluent in the languages. You've worked in think tank uh, organizations who've worked on this for years. So, so what I hope to do in my remaining three and a half minutes is just get as your professional expertise based on a life of working in the area, what you think Israel must do, what you think the Palestinians must do, what you think the United States should do, what you think Israel's neighbors should do. So again, I'm not talking about the, the negotiation, but just in your expertise in the area, I'd, I'd hope you could educate us. Uh, well, thank you. I think uh, the, you know, the broad outlines are you know, land for peace. There is a West Bank um, for the parties to determine the lines. There is Gaza um, for the parties to determine the lines, territorial swaps. Um, recognition. Um, uh, and that's on the Palestinian side. Right, rec right, right, right. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there are uh, difficult decisions that are going to have to be made potentially about uh, where, between the parties, about where the, the capital ultimately may be for the, for the, of the Palestinian state. Mm -hmm. um, uh, for the Palestinians, once again, it's recognition mm -hmm. of Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state. I think that's what the Israelis are demanding right now. That, and that was the terms of the original UN uh, decision. So, um, and, um, and for Israel to live within safe and secure borders. Mm -hmm. And that is for the parties to determine, of course, but whether this future Palestinian state is largely demilitarized. Um, uh, so I, I think those are the, sort of the, some of the key issues on, on that front. Um, and I think those are uh, surmountable. Um, if, if each side is willing to do the things that you outline, and, and both, both Israel and Palestinians have some things that they have to do if this desirable reality uh, will be accomplished. I'm not going to ask you what the U.S. should do, because you're right, there is just, you know, the State Department and Jared Kushner and others are working that. What about, is, what about the neighbors of Israel and the Palestinians? What do you think they need to do to help make the desirable outcome a reality? Thank you. I think uh, this is the, the, key, the key element here which is that for um, Israel, presumably, to make some very difficult decisions, um, in return, there would be recognition from across the region and, and other parties to follow. Um, and that is um, acceptance and um, uh, opening ties with, with Gulf states that mm -hmm. may be ongoing now, um, but, um, but are, uh, I think, very quiet. Um, right. Sort of, sort of sub rows that we would want them to be publicly supporting both any peace deal, but also opening up, you know, true nation-to-nation -nation relations in the sunlight with Israel. Right. I mean, that would be, that would be the hope, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, likewise, I think uh, some uh, funding support for the Palestinians to help them uh, develop their economy in a very big way, which will be, I think, important to both stabilize and strengthen and, um, and counter violent extremism in these areas. Well, I... I I hope that we remain very committed to this. I, I despair from my first visit in Israel in 2000 until my most recent visits. It seems like the prospects have gotten farther and farther apart, but I always describe having ancestors from a part of the world where the prospects looked zero for hundreds of years um, in Ireland, and then in our lifetime, after the Good Friday Accords, there was an accord, and there's generations of kids born in Ireland today who don't even know what it was like that there was centuries of troubles. Uh, so we need to 
remain committed to it and watch for those opportunities. And I appreciate your long work in this area and encourage you to keep that front of mind in your capacity should you be confirmed. Thanks, all of you. And thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Senator Markey for a full seven minutes. Thank you. Um, we, we hope that our agreement is uh, matched by President Trump's negotiating skill with, uh, with, uh, with uh, President Kim. Uh, thank you. Um, and by the way, Senator Kane, I agree with you. That's an incredible resume for most interesting man in the world. Okay? He really, it's amazing. But I was talking to Admiral Harris yesterday. You're going to sink his nomination if you keep saying he's the most interesting man in the world. No, I, I, the president is the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, but Admiral Harris, you know, his, his father in the Navy meets his mother in Japan, you know, after World War II. They get married, move to Tennessee, you know, uh, and then to Florida, and he returns as the head of our Pacific Command. Those are both states with no income tax. He's a very smart guy. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then to be here as our ambassador to Korea, just absolutely amazing. Each of these stories uh, is just um, an American dream come true in each instance. And we thank you for embodying um, all of that. And, uh, and, and by the way, I support wholeheartedly each one of your uh, uh, nominations uh, for confirmation. Uh, just uh, we thank each of you for your service. Um, I'd like, if I could, with you, Admiral Harris, just uh, move over to the sanctions regime, which is in place, and um, kind of the, some of the commentary coming out of um, uh, coming out of China, uh, that um, there might be a, an, an interest in relaxation uh, of that sanctions regime before we see uh, full compliance by President Kim in um, the uh, denuclearization of North Korea. Could you talk about that, your philosophy in terms of what the sequencing should be uh, in, um, in the uh, removal of any of those sanctions? Sure, uh, Senator. Uh, as I understand it, the sanctions remain in effect. Full sanctions remain in effect uh, until North Korea makes concrete steps, demonstrates concrete steps uh, toward denuclearization. Uh, I, I, the, the, the full range of United Nations sanctions uh, is what I'm talking about, and I believe that it's those sanctions that brought North Korea uh, to uh, Singapore in the first place, that brought Kim Jong-un to, uh, to Singapore. So I think that we need to maintain those sanctions uh, until uh, there's some concrete uh, demonstrations of, of, uh, of uh, uh, moving toward a denuclearized uh, North Korea. Are you concerned that China kind of unilaterally might just begin to turn a blind eye to an increase in trade uh, that will help to bolster the regime? Uh, I, I am concerned. Uh, China is a member of the United Nations, and the United Nations has determined that North Korea should be sanctioned because of their nuclear weapons development program, uh, and, they haven't, and the United Nations has not relaxed uh, those sanctions. So China, as a member of the United Nations, in my opinion, is obliged uh, to follow those rules. 
Yeah, I was there in um, Korea last um, August with uh, Senator Van Hollen and Senator Merkley while military maneuvers were being conducted in South Korea. Um, could you talk a little bit about the relationship with South Korea, the concern which they uh, voiced on day one that they had not been uh, notified of the um, and the change uh, in terms of those military exercises, and what you think is necessary going forward uh, in terms of uh, maintaining a close working partnership with South Korea. Sir, I, I believe that uh, uh, President Moon Jae-in uh, said it right uh, after the talks in Singapore. He uh, described them as talks of the century. Uh, I think uh, th that uh, he's optimistic uh, and wants to create that negotiation space uh, so that uh, North Korea has an opportunity to demonstrate uh, the seriousness by which uh, it is willing uh, to uh, undergo a denuclearization. So I think the first step we have to do uh, is uh, create that space, that negotiating space, uh, and then go forward from there. Is your uh, definition of denuclearization the complete removal of all nuclear um, uh, equipment before there is any relaxation of, um, of uh, trade sanctions? Uh, not necessarily uh, to the extent that you just described. Uh, I, I believe that, that the denuclearization means complete denuclearization of uh, equipment, research, uh, existing stockpiles, and all of that, including the, the means to deliver them. Uh, I think that's what denuclearization means. Uh, I don't know, uh, quite frankly, w where along that, that timeline toward complete denuclearization uh, that we should start to relax sanctions. I think that's part of the negotiations, and that's certainly part of the deliberations uh, that will happen back here uh, in Washington uh, and in Seoul with South Korea. So how, how concerned are you that um, this Kim is still working from the Kim family playbook, which in the 90s, and now in the 21st century just continues to result in them pocketing the rewards of negotiation while delaying the concessions uh, and then uh, accepting those rewards as now a fait accompli without ever having seen any benefits to flow to the United States, South Korea, or the West. Yes, sir. Well, we saw with uh, his predecessors uh, uh, this happened in, in uh, 94, uh, in 2005, and 2012. Uh, but I believe that the president uh, is, uh, uh, is, right on, is spot on when he says that he's not going to wait that long. Yep. You know, he'll know within a year, maybe less, and we'll know within a year or maybe less, uh, the seriousness by which Kim Jong-un uh, uh, approaches his part of the deal. And we'll be able to make that decision then. Thank you. We thank you, Admiral. We thank each of you for your service to our country, and uh, we look forward to uh, trying to help you to do your jobs in the uh, years ahead. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Thank Chairman. You. Thank you, sir. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ambassador Naj, let me just ask you, uh, do you uh, view uh, the defense, diplomacy, and development of the three Ds as all critically important to uh, our work in Africa? Absolutely, Senator. Um, the, 
if you get rid of the terrorists, you have to fill the space with something. And if after you get rid of the terrorists, the same conditions remain there with poor governance, abuse of human rights, a couple of years later, another terrorist group will come, as we saw in Somalia over the last several decades. So absolutely, yes, Senator. Do you think we have the, the balance right as of this moment? Senator, um, I can promise you that if I'm confirmed, I will be as aggressive as I can be in trying to obtain the resources that I believe are necessary. Of course, at the end of the day, I will support whatever budget the president uh, puts out. But uh, in my career, I've had to deal with lean budgets. I've had to deal with better budgets. And I promise you that I will optimize the resources the best way I can. My, my goal is not to have you dispute the administration's budget. Nobody could defend that. Uh, but the question is, will you seek and be an advocate if you are uh, ultimately um, uh, approved, uh, confirmed, uh, of creating the right balance among these three critical elements? Absolutely, Senator. All right, let me ask you, what's the effect of having such a significant military footprint in a country like Niger, but no aid mission? Senator, I do know that um, Niger has uh, resources from USAID. They do have a limited mission. They're not a, a formal mission, and they're also supported from other regional offices. Uh, it is one of those cases where Niger is threatened from several different directions. I think it's probably one of the most vulnerable countries in the Sahel, uh, the question will be, rightly, when the terrorists are gone, what happens next? And, and I can promise you that if confirmed, I will do my best to fight for those resources to replace the vacuum that's left behind. Let me ask you this. Given to the concerns that some have voiced about radicalization occurring due to abuses by <laughs> security forces, how should we be weighing in whether and when to sell arms to countries in Africa whose militaries have engaged in well-documented human rights abuses, even in the face of significant terrorist threats? Uh, Senator, abuse of, by security forces is a significant problem. In my experience uh, in, in Africa, I have seen the positive role that uh, U.S. military exchanges can play in actually improving the security forces from systematic abuses to uh, a point where it's only rogue elements or rogue individuals. So uh, based on my own experience, Senator, I am very, very much in favor of uh, as, as full an engagement as possible. Because That's of a mill-to-mill relationship. Absolutely. I'm talking about selling arms. O on those, Senator, I totally support U.S. law, and I promise you that if confirmed, I will examine very closely the human rights situations in each of those cases. As you know, the committee, the chairman and I have jurisdiction over arms sales in, in, in an informal way, and I would be interested in having an understanding of what's the right calibration here, so your insights would be helpful. Uh, just finally, uh, what's your position on the utility of investments in the democracy and governance sector as it relates to the African continent? Thank you very much for that question. In my view, governance and democracy is the glue that holds all other programs together. Because without governance and democracy, for example, we can have a phenomenal Power Africa program, but if the citizens in the country after the power is there don't believe in their government or don't believe that people are paying for their bills, uh, the infrastructure will be destructed. So uh, from my experience, I am totally committed to governance and human rights and democracy projects. And as a follow-on, and I'm, I'm thrilled to hear your answer, as a follow-on to that, I hope you'll be within 
the confines of the State Department and the administration an advocate for funding in that regard because we're, we're sorely lacking this. Lastly, I'd, I'd like commitments from you that if confirmed, you will return uh, in a relatively brief time uh, to, to uh, brief us on the status of the development of a coordinated diplomatic approach to both the Horn and the Sahel Maghreb uh, part of the continent. You have that, Senator. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. <clears throat> I want to thank all three of you for your willingness to serve. I, I can tell you in recent times we've not had a committee hearing like this where uh, all of the nominees are so broadly supported on both sides of the aisle. And I think it speaks to, to who you are as people, but also your professionalism. So we thank you for that. We thank your families for joining you in your service. And uh, we're going to keep the record open until the close of business tomorrow, so there'll be some written questions. I know all three of you are very familiar with this. If you could respond to those fairly quickly, it will help speed along your nomination. Well, thanks, so Senator. One very brief comment, Mr. Shanker. You suggested that your children aren't angels. They have ex behaved extraordinarily well. I mean, <laughs> I don't think there are adults who have could behave as well in the audience. So anyway. <laughs> you want to respond to that? Yeah. <laughs> what can you say? No comment. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, and uh, with that, the meeting is adjourned. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>